Hurry into Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. Or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Coming up on the Mark Devine Show. Recovery is him feeling loved, experiencing love from others, and then giving love. And maybe that sounds highfalutin, but I mean in the real world kind of thing. That's what recovery looks like. Welcome to the Mark Devine Show. I'm your host, Mark Devine. Super stoked to have you here today. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time and attention. I love to speak to fascinating people from all walks of life on the show. I speak to motivational scientists and peace crusaders and protectors of the Amazon rainforest and also writers and directors, such as my guest today, Cristobal Cruzen. Cristobal was born in Tampa, Florida, initially aspired to be a writer, uh, attended Harvard University to study English Lit. But his interest in photography and filmmaking caused him to switch to NYU, where he graduated with a BFA in film and television, went on to further his education at the Art Center College for an MFA in film, and he established Messenger Films, embarking him on a career as a writer, director in film and television. Notable works include Final Solution, More Than Dreams, Undaunted, Sabina Kay, and his latest, Let Me Have My Son. He's also written and authored Numerous books, such as They Were Christians and Let Me Have My Son. He's recognized for his poetic visual approach and ability to listen to heartfelt performances from his actors. Before I get into the show, I wanted you to know that I'm opening up slots for our Unbeatable Coach Certification and our Unbeatable Team for 2024. The Unbeatable Team is an amazing year of transformational training. It's where I direct my full attention and time in coaching and training. I don't do it anywhere else. It's here in the Unbuilt team that I can give my full attention to help those deeply committed to transforming to become uncommon in a world that you know is rapidly collapsing into fear, moral relativism, and mediocrity. We meet virtually every month as a team, come together four times during the year for three days of powerful in-person training and practice, and I'm here to help you break through any barriers and to crush all of your goals for 2024. So if you're ready to go deep with me and willing to do the work, I can guarantee amazing strides will be made. Go to unbeatableteam.com and unbeatablecoaching.com to learn more about these unbeatable events. Now, back to the show. I'm excited to have this conversation. You know, what I'd really like to start with, Joe, is kind of like a little bit of your origin story. Like, where are you from and what were the early influences, parents or peers or, you know, just your own insights that kind of sets a major trajectory for you in your life? Well, I was born and raised in Tampa, Florida. And Tampa, I still think of Tampa as my homeland. (laughs) But at the age of 15, I left Tampa to go to a boarding school up in the Northeast. And I had never seen snow before. Your parents wanted to get you out of town. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, honestly, my mother had aspirations for all her children, all four children. So I had an older brother who had preceded me to the same boarding school. 
But you asked about those early influences, and I attribute so much value to my grandmother, my mother's mother in particular. Hmm. She was a widow who lived in a small house not too far from our home, and I just loved her. She's a quiet kind of lady, but I loved to visit her. There were four children in the family, and I think maybe she kind of favored me a little bit. <laughs> maybe I'm romanticizing that. But we certainly got along well. I just loved her, and she was a wonderful influence on my life. Sadly, she passed away when I was 11. And for many, many years after that, in my late teens, my 20s, when I've hit a really low spot in life or some terrible obstacle or great disappointment, I found myself thinking of her, even calling on her name. She was just a wonderful influence in my life. That's really sweet. I mean, that's quite possible that she was there for you. Yeah, I, I think so. And so Tampa formed me. I was born in the 1950s. So that clues you into on the era in which I grew up. The 60s, of course, was a time of great tumult in the country. And I was up in the Northeast and that marked a whole new chapter in my life. I read that you were really interested in, in literature at a young age. So what was it that kind of got you interested in English literature? Did you have a voracious appetite for reading, or what, what was it that kind of led you there? Yeah, it was the stories, you know, the stories in these classics in particular. And in the fourth grade, I think it was the fourth grade, it could have been the third grade, I was kind of sickly, a sickly child, and I had to be home a lot, you know, not in school. And in those days, we had many fewer diversions and distractions. Yes, we did. <laughs> so reading was my escape. And also, I must say, the comic book version of some of these classics that I read in the first and second grade, like I remember in particular, The Count of Monte Cristo, which is just a rousing adventure mm -hmm. tale, right? And had me completely engrossed. As I got older, I realized, oh, this is a novel, you know, uh, it's not just a comic book. And so I really began reading the novels, and I was fortunate to go to a private school, a parochial school there in Tampa, St. John's Parish Day School. And the headmaster, who was Canadian, was very, very strict, very strict and very demanding. And he had us reading the one I remember in particular is The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner when I was nine years old, ten years old. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Not an abridged version Incredible. or a dumbed-down version, but the original. You know? So I, I give him credit, you know, for that influence as well. That's pretty powerful. I think I was reading The Hardy Boys at that age. I was reading The Hardy Boys, too. <laughs> you were reading classic texts. Yeah, no, I, I love The Hardy Boys. It's great stuff. So, but it was always seemed to be centered around story. And then as I grew up, I kind of tried my own hand at writing stories, and eventually that led into filmmaking. So you went to Harvard undergrad with this idea of getting into lit, and uh, you decided along the way that you wanted to kind of shift toward the arts and filmmaking. So was that a hard decision? I mean, it seems like all the work to get into Harvard, it'd be hard to bounce from there. To my alma mater, which is NYU also. Oh, okay. My graduate school. Cool. Well, you asked me, was it a hard decision? It was actually more a stupid choice <laughs> because <laughs> I could have finished okay. at Harvard 
I entered as a sophomore, so I'd already knocked out the first year. But, you know, I lacked, not to, not to shift blame to anybody, because there's really nobody I would name, but I did lack direction, I think, and I was rash, you know, in making that decision. It wasn't really necessary. I could have stayed at Harvard, and mm-hmm. it was just another two years. But, you know, what's that saying? Youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't have the maturity to see deeply enough that, hey, look, get, finish your degree here at Harvard and then study film at a postgraduate level. That just didn't occur to me. So I was very intemperate and hmm. wanted to move ahead. I do regret that decision. Yeah, well, sometimes, you know, those are powerful because we learn from them. Maybe there was some other point in your life where you said, you know what, I need to just finish what I started here. You're absolutely right. No life experience should ever be wasted. No, I agree. Because the failures in life, quote unquote, are great teaching Mm-mm. experiences. So, yes. So, where was it that you really started to find your passion, your groove as a screenwriter and, you know, producer or director? I don't know. Do you do both production and direction? I do both. I'm known as a writer director. Writer director, okay. Well, funny enough, it did sort of spark at Harvard. That year I was there, there was a group on campus, and I couldn't tell you the name of them at this point, but they would show the classics of cinema. They had like film retrospective, they would call it. So you see a flyer on the bulletin board, and I said, that looks interesting. And I remember going to, I believe it was Adam's house there in the yard there, Harvard. They had this beautiful library with as I recalled, you know, the bookshelves went way up high and these nice, big, comfortable chairs. And somebody had set up a 16 millimeter projector. We're talking 1972, you know, 1972, 71 even could have been. There was no VCR, many of them, <laughs> but they had gotten a hold of 16 millimeter prints. And I remember watching several Russian classics. Italian classics, French films, Swedish, a lot of foreign films. And I was kind of transfixed by it all. I had never seen movies like that in my whole life. And I was deeply impressed. In the year prior to going to Harvard, I had taken a year off after high school. I spent that year in Australia, which also influenced me because I was 10 months in Australia thinking that I would become a photojournalist because hmm. I loved to write. I was good at writing, and I got interested in photography as well. So I just thought, well, you know, that's a career choice, photojournalism. But filmmaking came in like a wave and just kind of swept me away. I just became so enamored with it all. And, and then I thought, well, where can I go to film school? And that's how I ended up eventually at NYU. It seems to me, even though... That whole industry was still in its early stages, wasn't it? I mean, how big was the writing Hollywood kind of film production industry in the late 60s and early 70s? I mean, compared to today, it was just a speck. Yeah, the indie filmmaking scene, you know, was at a very early stage at that point for the United States, Mm -hmm. with exceptions, of course. But you had Francis Ford Coppola as one, Terrence Malick another, George Lucas, and several others. They had tended to go through the USC film school. Martin Scorsese 
he went to NYU mm -hmm. or he taught at NYU. So they were definitely there in place. But you're right. It was, it was early on. And by no means had I figured it all out. Not at all. But at NYU, I did think, okay, this can be the stepping stone to, you know, bigger and better things. My college advisor there was Haig Mnugin, who was uh, Martin Scorsese's advisor. Oh, cool. So I thought, well, I'm pretty close to this, you know. And my screenwriting teacher was a man named Robert Allen Arthur, who has passed away, but he produced Cabaret back in the day. Mm -hmm. He was a great screenwriter. He taught me how to write screenplays. So there were a lot of good things that happened to me at NYU. That's amazing. So could you just kind of walk us through what it takes to write a screenplay? I mean, I've written a few books, and I know people listening, many have probably written books, but what's, what's different between writing a, like a book and a screenplay? I think the first and most important thing to understand is that a book is tantamount to it, the final product. Mm -hmm. A screenplay is a step in the process to a final product. Interesting. So if we compare making a film to building a house, let's say, the architectural blueprint is not the house, <laughs> but it shows everybody interested what the house is going to look like. Mm -hmm. So while screenplays are not the final product, no movie, this is my opinion, but I think it's borne out by many people who would agree, no movie ever rises above the screenplay. Hmm. Meaning, if you don't have a good screenplay, you're probably not going to have a good film. Mm -hmm. And if you do have a good screenplay, you might have all kinds of resistance and problems and whatnot. But if you hold fast, hold true to, to the plan, the design, it's a design. It's, the screenplay is a design. If you hold fast to that, chances are you're going to have a nice film when it's all said and done. There's an art to writing a screenplay, but writing a book is a different animal. So does a screenplay have a like a formulaic arc to it, like the hero's journey, or, or are there more than one arcs that a screenplay can have? Well, you mentioned that, and that's for, I'm a kind of a contrarian, I suppose, mm -hmm. but I do resist the notion that that you have to follow these rules. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're there. You can buy a book on how to write a screenplay, and they'll give you rules. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that saying, um, when you really have experience, you can bend the rules or break the rules. But as you're learning, you need to follow the rules to learn. Right. That makes sense. I've always sort of maintained that if your film is just a formulaic creation, you're going to have a kind of formulaic film. Right. You see that with all the blockbusters that they're trying to produce today. It's just the same, literally the same story with different characters, just repeated over and over. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's almost like crack. It's just exciting for the short hit and everyone moves on and forgets it a moment later. So I can see that. Breaking the rules is adding an element, you know, it adds that element of surprise. It's like the third body problem, right? You have something expected and then all of a sudden breaking the rules is bringing something completely unexpected into the, into the story. So what's your, like, how would you characterize your style or like your genre? Do you have a style or, or genre or? Well, I do gravitate toward drama. I'm an indie filmmaker at heart. I would like to be uh, 
you know, bankrolled by Hollywood. Well, maybe I wouldn't want to be bankrolled right. by <laughs> Hollywood. Controlled by Hollywood, would, right? Yeah. That'd be, <laughs> be careful what you ask for. Yeah, that's right. But I'm drawn to drama. My track record shows that I've often taken true stories and dramatized them. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I've kind of, over the years, just kind of fallen into that more than set out to do that from the beginning. But there is great power, I believe, in working from a true story. And of course, we've all seen those movies that have the little clip at the end of the real character, the real life characters. And that's kind of an area that I like to work in. But I also enjoy, for lack of a better word, I'll just say surrealism. Mm -hmm. Federico Fellini, some of his movies, he's an Italian director. He's been dead many years now. Ingmar Bergman and some of his films making, I think film is, it's certainly an art form. It's a newer art form. And I think we're constantly learning how to use it to express ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like the impressionist painters did, you know, <clears throat> in the late 1800s in Europe, they were met with great hostility at the beginning. And now we look at their paintings and, you know, that's not the case anymore. So I do long to experiment as well. But within a story, again, going back to what you had asked me earlier, I was talking about how I've always been drawn to story. So what is the most challenging movie that you've produced where maybe you just thought it wasn't going to work out and then it did somehow? That I've actually made or that I have written and want to make? Well, I guess you could tell either. You know, I'm just more interested in like, the struggle, like, you know, because it's easy to think that it's all gravy when you have these some big successes. But I mean, there's nonstop struggle along the way, I imagine. Yeah, no, you're right. Well, I can point to my very first movie, which I made in Mexico on a shoestring budget. I mean, it was ridiculously low budget, kind of like I think Robert Rodriguez made the Mariachi Man for $25,000. I was that right? in that no, category. <laughs> I mean, that was a struggle from every vantage point, but we got it finished. I think the movie that fits that description well, I can think of two. One is Final Solution, which I made in South Africa. Mm-hmm. We filmed in the year 2000. And I w- had been working on the screenplay and some fundraising for that film going back to 1988. Holy cow. What was the film about? Just refresh my memory. I remember seeing it. Yeah, based on a true story of an Afrikaner, a white South African who was essentially a white supremacist. He was a bit of a thug, frankly, but he was a very intelligent guy and very charismatic and had his following. Eventually, he became an attorney. But early on, he was more a thug who would beat up people. You know, he and his friends would go into the townships. This would have been in the 1960s, setting houses on fire, beating up people. He didn't probably tell me everything he did, but he was he was not a good guy in those years. He actually had formulated, this is where the title of the movie comes from. He had mapped out a plan that he called his final solution for the blacks of South Africa, which was essentially to round the black people up into the townships where they already were in the main and essentially liquidate. It was a genocidal plan. 
Good God. That met with some acceptance on the part of the military establishment in South Africa. Now, this was in the 1960s that this was happening. He never did it, but that just shows you his kind of person he was. How did he find Christianity? What was the turning point for him? Well, one thing was his wife, who in fact was the daughter of a military man himself, but not of that ilk, you know, who didn't believe in anything like that. And also from a book called Cry, the Beloved Country by Alan Payton, which is a wonderful book. I would highly recommend you, if you haven't read it or anybody listening, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's been made into a movie several times, once with James Earl Jones, another time with Sidney Poitier, called Cry, the Beloved Country. And he read this book, which he considered propaganda and lies, but his girlfriend, who became his wife, said, read it. You think you know everything. They met at the university. Read it and see if your ideas actually hold up in the marketplace of ideas. Because he liked her. He said, okay, I'll read it. And he was overcome by the book, which, no, to me, this is so important because his heart, I really think all along was a tender heart. Hmm. But for whatever reason, he had just become so filled with hatred. Mm -hmm. But this book served as the lancet, you know, to Mm -hmm. puncture that awful casing around his heart to bring out the beauty. Mm -hmm. And that really, a a single book. That's amazing. The power of words. Yes. You know, is infused with all this spiritual energy. That's so cool. It reoriented him. And he met some Christian people here and there as well. But it was that book that primarily got him on that path. And then in our movie, we see how he reaches out to a young black man that he at one time had beaten up, you know, within an inch of his life. And he realizes what he had done. So he asked forgiveness. Your question had to do with difficulty. And it took me 12 years to shoot the film. And then it took a few years to edit the film. And then the distributor I think basically stole from us <laughs> financially. Oh, no. And so a lot of horror stories, but you can still watch that film on Amazon if you want to. Just put in Final Solution. There may be other films as well, but our movie would come up under my name. Yeah. And then my most recent film called Let Me Have My Son has been very, <laughs> very challenging, very difficult. I've never had enough money to make the film. It's semi-autobiographical, so it tells the story of my my oldest child who developed schizophrenia as a teenager. Hmm. And it was a severe, severe case. He has had to be institutionalized for many years. He's doing better now and soon to be discharged, so we're very thankful for that. But I wanted to make a movie that would celebrate his life. I think that when we share a story like this, I mean, in my case, I said, well, this is my story. And this kind of gives you an idea of how we have walked this very difficult walk as a family, that it can encourage other people. So, right. And I've seen that. We've only released the film. It's only been out for three months, but we've been getting feedback, good feedback. I can imagine. I mean, mental health, you know, is is kind of like the elephant in the room in the Western world. You know, I think it's just far greater than anyone's willing to admit. You know, and a large part of the homeless population is really mental health issues. And it just, 
it got exacerbated and magnified because of COVID and the isolation and the fear. So I, I think it's amazing. And probably the transformation that you had to go through to write this story, you know, in honor of not just your son, but the whole family system that was trying to support him back to health. People need to hear that, especially since there's so much negativity in the world, you know? So thank you for doing that. I want to come back to that, but you talked about a transformation of this South African guy by finding kind of Christianity. And I, I noted in your bio that you had a similar situation. Can we talk about that a bit? Yeah, I did. I mentioned my grandmother to you at the outset, mm -hmm. who was so dear to me. She was a Catholic woman, devout. My father's family were Protestant. But I knew as a child, my grandmother, I understood as a child without being told that she had a very special connection to God. I'll put it that way. And I don't think that ever really left me. And I remember when I was 12 years old, she had died when I was 11. And I knelt down in my house there in Tampa, and I said a prayer. And I said, God, let me help people. That was my prayer. I want to be someone who helps other people. When I went off to the boarding school up north and, you know, like from the age of 16 to 25 or so, I went to go live in New York City eventually. I became almost an anarchist, I could say, a nihilist, existentialist, agnostic. That's pretty common for young, you know, college age kids in the 60s and 70s, right? You were in good company. I was in good company. Well, all my friends were that way, so <laughs> I guess I know, uh, right? all my friends were similar. But, you know, I was in my mid-20s, maybe 26, 27, perhaps, no older than 27, though, and living in New York, and I was in Manhattan at that point. And I was reading an article in the Village Voice newspaper talking about this Swami, a Hindu holy man, Swami Muktananda, if I remember his name. Yeah, correctly. I'm familiar with him. Yeah. And how he was in the Greenwich Square having kind of a rally there. And people, I didn't go, I was just reading about it. And how he would touch people with his peacock feather. He had a peacock feather. And he would crown you on the head with his peacock feather and give you his blessing, I suppose. And many people were touched in a positive way. And I'm sitting on the floor of my apartment in Manhattan there, and I just burst into tears. And, I just, and that prayer I had made as a 12-year-old came flooding back into my soul and heart. About, in my prayer was, God, let me help you. But I wasn't praying the prayer. I was crying out saying, why am I not helping people? Mm -hmm. I felt like I had not done anything, absolutely nothing in all that time to help anybody, really. I mean, maybe I was wrong, but that's how I felt, that I had not done anything to help. Them. And sort of along the same time of that experience, maybe the year before, I had been uh, reading books about spirituality, religion. I was reading, well, I read the Bhagavad Gita, for example. I read books by Edgar Cayce dealing with metaphysics. I was studying Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, and in my own way, practicing meditation. I mean, I wasn't in a group, but just reading, trying to do it. I had this desire to know if there was something more than just the physical reality. I mean, I could touch my hand, I could 
I had a body, but is that all there is? That was my big question. Are we just molecules? You know, are we just something physical and that's it? And I just had to find an answer. I had to find an answer. And when I read that about the Swami there, it just got me looking deeper and deeper and deeper. And I made a trip to Australia where I was writing a screenplay. It turned out to be, it was based on a true story. And it turned out that the main character of the story I discovered, who, by the way, was a Ukrainian immigrant to Australia. It turned out in my research there in Australia that he had been a Christian and that that explained so much of his behavior because he was like a holy man, which is why I was so drawn to him. But then I discovered that his holiness came from being a Christian. So I went out and bought a Bible and I started to read the Bible. <laughs> I thought, well, because I was told, in fact, that he, he had a Bible. Eyewitnesses. I spoke to people who had known this guy. The drama of his story occurred in the 50s, 1950s, so I was there after the fact. I never got to meet him in person, but he inspired me to begin reading the Bible. And when I read the Sermon on the Mount in particular, I was absolutely transfixed. I was overcome almost, you could say, because, again, I had been searching consciously for truth. If, and there was a big if, I mean, maybe there is no truth. But if truth could be found, I wanted to know it. And when I read the Sermon on the Mount, to me, that was the answer. I found the truth. I marked that as the beginning. I can't say I became a Christian right then. But at that point, I was 28 years old in Australia, reading the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and within a year, I had become a born-again Christian. <laughs> I went back to New York, started going to church. What, what does that mean to you? born-again Christian. And I love that phrase, that phrase of being twice born or, you know, an idea of an awakening experience where you suddenly awaken to greater totality of your existence. I mean, there's a lot of, every tribe and every religion has a version of this. So what does that mean to you, born-again Christian? Yeah. I must tell you, I had never heard of the term myself hmm. until I was working at a health food store there in Manhattan after I had come back from Australia carried around this pocket New Testament, and somebody said, are you born again to me? And I said, what is that? <laughs> I didn't know what it meant. And of course, Jimmy Carter, the president, Carter, he famously said that he had been born again. But I can tell you what it means to me. What it means to me now, and back then too, I learned that in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. And then Nicodemus said, what do you mean? I can't go back to my mother's womb and be born again. And he says, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. So for me, being born again means almost, you could say, having a second chance. I'd like to think of it that way, mm -hmm. where I won't say you get to live life over again, but you get to live what remains of your life from that time forward with a different set of eyes, with a different perspective, mm -hmm. with a different orientation to everything, to life, to dreams. By dreams, I mean when you sleep and you have dreams. Just to everything. People you know, places you go, nature, just everything is perceived different. That's how I like to think. Yeah, I like that's a good description. 
And also your relationship to your past. You know, you can have forgiveness toward yourself and anyone else who might have hurt you or wronged you. And that's powerful to release a lot of that energy. Thank you for saying that because I'll just be frank with you. Of late, I've been struggling with that exact thing personally where I'm still trying to uh, get over some things that I've done in the past, you know. But I'm reminded that the Apostle Paul, he had a troubled past. And he said, but you know what? I'm not going to focus on that. I'm not going to live in that. I'm going to forget the things that are behind, and I'm going to press on toward the things that lie ahead. And forgetting what is behind, it doesn't mean that you just sort of like the monkey who said, nah, 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 you know, he can't hear anything. It doesn't, not that. You know things happen that you may regret, or you did things that you may regret, but you're going to let them go. And like you say, you know, forgive yourself. If God has forgiven you, who are you to hold on to unforgiveness, right? We need to forgive ourselves, too. My favorite quote I often say to my folks is, the ego is resistance to what is. And what is, is everythingness. God, source. Yeah. And we get to play our little part, and our ego it wants to take responsibility for everything as if it were master of the universe. Mm-hmm. And then when things don't quite go according to plan, we beat the shit out of ourselves. That's not fair. <laughs> no. Give ourselves a break, yeah. That's awesome. So I want to come back. The title, I mean, it's so powerful. Let me have my son. It sounds like a cry for help to Jesus or to God. You're right. A cry is literal, true to life in the sense that when Daniel, his name is Daniel, when he was first institutionalized at the age of 18, after five years, I mean, I was watching my son, who was a great athlete, by the way, this beautiful young man and just had so much potential. And here he was locked up in a mental hospital. Can I just ask, was there any kind of like triggering thing? I had a friend whose son went schizophrenic and it happened after one incident with drugs, just triggered something. Mm-hmm. Was there anything like that? Yes. With your son? Yes. Triggered it? It's a host of factors here probably because he did experiment with drugs. That's one. There was also, there is a history of mental illness on both sides of the family. Mm-hmm. His mother's side, my side. I've been told by psychiatrists he likely has a genetic predisposition that the drug. Yeah, that got switched on. Triggered. Yep. Awful. And there was some trauma in the home. Trauma is never a good thing and can often lead to a flashpoint with mental illness. Yeah. But when he was in the hospital, they were giving him different kinds of medication and nothing was really. They didn't really quite know what to do, and I could tell. In fact, one of the doctors told me he'll likely be here the rest of his life. I couldn't accept that on any level. That's when I began just saying, let me have my son, because I felt that if I could get him at home, and probably wishful thinking, I'll admit, but if I could have him (laughs) at home, he'll do better. Right. I became his legal guardian, and I forced the hospital's hand. I said, you have to give me my son. Let me have my son because we're moving to Mexico. And I had lived in Mexico before and spoke the language. My other kids were on board with it. I was going through a divorce at the time. So it was sort of me and my my kids. And we went to Mexico and I 
got my son. Let me have my son. They gave my son. And we depict that in the movie, what happened in Mexico. And it did not answer all the uh, problems, if you will. Or, But on the positive side, I will always be thankful for Mexico because that time we had there as a family overall was absolutely beautiful. And I had my son at home and he did get better. But that's not the end of the story. He also had a relapse. <laughs> but for a time, he did, did, he? did better. Was your son, I mean, when it comes to like spiritual healing, how much of his recovery do you think was just like your energy bringing just the energy of love or God, you know, that what you would consider to be spiritual energy? And was he attuned to that? Yes. What's your perspective on that? No, that's a great question. And he is attuned to that very much so. In the power of love, we hear that said, you know, bandied about, it's real. I know it's real. I've seen it in operation with my son in particular. And he is very, very open to spirituality, to Christianity, to love. I mean, he's about to get out of the hospital, but right now he's at a distance. So I don't see him that frequently. But whenever we talk on the phone, which is almost daily, we often pray together. And he will pray for me. And when I was making the film, I'd pray for him. And he'd say, let me pray for you, Dad. Just beautiful prayers. My son is very, very attuned to other people. And he loves people. He really genuinely loves people. He, he's interested in them. And he wants to be connected to them, which is why it's so painful when he's separated by an institution. Right from other people, even his own family. So we're really looking forward. I'm looking forward to seeing him kind of bloom in the, the coming years. I have a lot of friends who are just waiting to visit him. He'll be in a group home, so it'll be a totally different situation where mm -hmm. people can come and go and meet him. And What does recovery look like, Cristobal? I mean, what does recovery look like for him? For him, if we're just frank, you know, he'll never, he's 40 years old now. He's not going to be the professional athlete that I thought he might have been at one point. He's diminished. There's no question. He's diminished. The medications, there are side effects to these medications. His hands will quiver. He, depending on when you're talking to him and when he's taking medication, his speech may be slurred. But recovery is him feeling loved experiencing love from others and then giving love. And maybe that sounds highfalutin, but I mean in the real world kind of thing. No, I love that. That's what recovery looks like. That's awesome. Well, we've got to wrap up here. So the movie is out. Did you write the book first? Yes. Is that like the screenplay? Yeah, well, I wrote the book first. The book is not a novel, however, just so that you, you understand. It's more a collection of letters that were written over the years, asking people to pray for my son and telling the story along the way. But it was written before the movie, yes. And the movie is streaming on Amazon, Amazon Prime, mm -hmm. or you can go to our website, letmehavemyson.com, that has all the information about how to watch the film, too. So what's next for you, Christopher? 
Wow. I have four grandchildren nearby, and I just visited two others out in New Jersey. I have remarried. My wife is a lovely person and a great support to me. So, But I do want to make more films. You know, I'm getting up there in years, and I'm not an ex-Navy SEAL. Uh, <laughs> so, But I'm in pretty good shape in terms of, you know, I mean, I'm not limping around. I I have ink in the well here, you know. I think there's more I can yeah, do. Yeah, you and... sure do. <laughs> ink in the well. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And you can replenish that ink supply anytime. That's awesome. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And best to your son. Thank you. Honestly, like we send him our love. Thank you. Well, that man has a huge, huge heart. And what a great story. Let me have my son. I wish them the best. So thank you, Cristobal, for joining us on the Mark Devine Show. Show notes are up at our website at markdevine.com. The video will be on our YouTube channel. And you can reach out to us on social media. I'm at Mark Devine on X or Twitter, at Real Mark Devine on Instagram and Facebook, or I have a LinkedIn profile. If you're not on my newsletter email distribution list, you might want to consider going to markdevine.com to subscribe. The newsletter is called Divine Inspiration, and it comes out every Tuesday. And I have show notes of our podcast, and I have a blog, and a book I'm reading, and so there are other really interesting things that come across my desk that are positive and inspiring, as well as a weekly practice. So check it out, markdevine.com. Thanks so much to my incredible team, Catherine Devine and Jason Sanderson and Jeff Haskell, who help produce the podcast and newsletter and bring guests like Cristobal to you every week. Ratings and reviews are really helpful, so if you haven't done so, please consider doing so. Wherever you listen, it helps us stay at the top of the rankings and get the show momentum. And as usual, thank you so much for your support and for being the change you want to see in the world. Stay positive, stay focused, and pay it forward. Till next week, who y'all?